Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and this week we're having a conversation with Professor Graham Reid. Graham is Chair of Science and Research and Policy at University College London and he's the co-author, along with Professor Adrian Smith, of an independent report to government on international collaboration on research and innovation, which was published earlier this month. Graham, how did this report come about? The, the, this report is very much part of the Brexit agenda. Uh, UK researchers uh, have had decades of successful participation in EU R&D programmes. It's a part of uh, our relationship with the EU that has been a huge success throughout the time that we have uh, taken part in it. But we don't know the shape of the UK's future relationship with the EU. Yeah. And we don't know the shape of Horizon Europe, the new EU R&D programme. Yeah. So with these two big unknowns in front of us, the government thought that we should look at what the, the country might do in the event that the UK does not participate in Horizon Europe. And that's what Adrian Smith and I uh, were asked to advise on. It is relationship with the EU looks like. That's fair enough uh, and of course most people from the UK academic community would naturally assume that it would be a good thing to join Horizon Europe but it's good to understand that the context of this review was setting that aside uh, to look about what, what would happen otherwise. What were the specific objectives of the review? So you say that most people would assume it's a good thing to join, and I'd agree, that's, that, that is the, the almost universal uh, perception. But actually, they're saying it's a good thing to join without knowing what it is they're joining, would be my first observation. Yeah. Um, and for people that earn a living through the use and analysis of evidence, that might not be the best way forward. The, the, the other observation I'd offer is that Throughout our participation in European research programmes, the amount of money that the UK puts into these programmes has been included within this country's treaty commitment to the EU. Yes. It's part of our membership subscription to the EU. Yes. Nobody has had to justify the money and nobody has had to sacrifice another piece of expenditure in order to pay for it. Yes, but so you have to get the value from it anyway because you have to do it anyway. The, yeah, yeah the, money, the, the, the money has already been spent as part of our membership subscription, so of course it makes sense to participate. Yeah. In future, if this country leaves the EU, then there will be no automatic membership subscription and the cost of taking part in EU research programmes will be tensioned against other areas of public spending. Yes. 
we won't be able to do something else if we participate in EU programmes. That's going to be an entirely new territory for us, and that was another part of the context for the report. Okay. Let's dive into some of the conclusions from the report and see, uh, see what you found. What were the main conclusions that you drew during the course of this exercise? So, the main conclusion was that participation in European programmes has been a towering success for this country. And if, if everybody gets what they want, in that case we will continue to participate in EU programmes. But if that doesn't work out, there are plausible alternatives. And talk of Armageddon for the research community probably overstates the problems that we would face if association is not possible. So uh, let's tease out what some of those plausible alternatives are. The report that you published outlines uh, some vision of what this could look like. What are the key elements that come out of that vision? So the, the first thing that we uh, observe is that if we come out of EU R&D programmes fairly abruptly, then we, we're going to assume that that decision has been taken at quite a senior political level. The implications of withdrawing from EU programmes will reach far beyond research and innovation. There will be political and economic consequences that go outside research and innovation. So we are assuming that it's a decision that's been taken uh, at, at, a, at, a, at a senior level in government. And if that decision has been taken, we do not see a plausible case for spending lots of public money replicating EU programmes line by line in the UK. So we don't start from that position. On the other hand, we should not be frightened of learning from bits of the EU programmes that have worked particularly well and for which there's not an obvious alternative. So we shouldn't be afraid of mimicking them, but starting with the proposition of line-by-line -line replication does, doesn't seem plausible for us. So what are the elements that we should keep or mimic in some way, and what are the elements that you think have not worked as well and we wouldn't need to keep? So the first thing we should do is to, uh, is to protect and stabilise capabilities that have been built up through our existing participation. It would be reckless in the extreme to trash capabilities that have been built up over decades to damage the careers of talented people who have a long history of winning EU funding and every expectation of continuing to win it. And those expectations have been abruptly ended by us no longer participating. So we think that the top priority is to protect and stabilise existing capabilities and turn an abrupt political decision into an orderly transition for scientific careers. And that's 
That is number one. It comes before any of the shiny new ideas that we've got. With that done, and only with that done, we then think that there there is really quite an exciting but much more global vision focusing on areas anywhere in the world that offer potential for strong collaboration rather than having the uh, particularly strong focus on the European Union that there's been over recent decades. So one of the elements of that is to do with people and to do with talent and this then comes back into decisions the government's going to have to make anyway uh, about an immigration policy. So accepting that there's one set of considerations about people already here but thinking more into the future, what did you conclude uh, about talent strategy in this new arrangement? So we, we made two suggestions of a slightly different character. First of all, we made a, a recommendation on immigration policy, and then secondly, we made an immigration on, a, a recommendation for the funding of, of research fellowships. On immigration policy, we think that the time is ripe to have an integrated policy that spans both the attraction of talented people to the country and the regulation of entry to the country. Mm -hmm. Historically, immigration policy has focused exclusively on the regulation of entry. And that feels like half a policy. A rounded immigration policy would also be identifying areas in which we want to reach out and persuade people to, and their families to come to and, and live and build careers in this country, as well as, of course, for having some form of regulation at the, uh, to, to the, 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 the entry points. So that's the immigration policy. And are there any countries that already have this type of policy that we could learn from? Uh, not about well, not not that I'm aware of articulated in quite that way. Okay, but there are countries uh, that have set out to attract talented people as part of, particularly as part of a, a research and innovation strategy. Okay, uh, sorry, the second so, part. So the, so the fellowships now. One of the things that we propose is that a new vision can be aligned with other areas of UK policy rather than having to fit into the collective interests of 28 member states. Yeah. And one of the areas of UK policy that looks as if it's going to persist through this general election is raising overall investment levels in the country to 25 or 3% of GDP. That is only possible if we provide an outstandingly attractive environment for some of the world's most talented researchers. They are not the only people we need to attract. We need to attract technicians and we need to attract a whole lot of other skills around that. But, but one of the groups of people we need to attract is that exceptional talent from the research and innovation community. And we think one way of doing that is to learn lessons from the European Research Council, one of the great successes in EU research and innovation. And so we have proposed 
that the union establishes uh, a suite of outstanding and prestigious research fellowships that offer grant awards for two or three terms of four years, so that's eight to 12 years, that the scale of the awards should be greater than those available from alternative schemes, and the peer review should be of exceptionally high rigour, overseen by national academies from across the UK, Ireland and beyond. And that would provide a magnet for talent yeah. of a quite exceptional level, and that in turn, the evidence is really pretty clear, is a big attractor of global investment in R&D, thereby contributing to 2.4%. And I guess I'll ask the same question. Are there other countries that have models in this kind of way, other than the ERC itself, I guess? Um, I don't think there's anything... There's, there are quite a few countries that use funding instruments to attract and retain talent. Yeah. I would say that the ERC was our starting point for thinking about this, remembering that we are writing a report not about a place we want to be, yes. but a place that we might be pushed into Correct. if we're not allowed to participate in the ERC. Yes, no, understood. One other area which comes up in the report and is actually a, a piece of policy across the UK at the moment is to do with place. And there's a tension that people talk about, at least, between supporting research and innovation through public funding, wherever it is, uh, which can often concentrate it in certain areas, versus ensuring that all regions and all countries of the UK benefit. Um, and this is, of course, true for international collaboration as much as for domestic funding. Is this a real tension? And what are the ways that we should address it? So this is, this is an area of the report that, frankly, I don't think we had expected to write. Um, we were caught a little bit by surprise when we discovered the scale and breadth of ways in which regional development funding from the EU was being deployed by the research and innovation community. We knew it was there. We knew it was important to some people. We just didn't realise how many people it was important to. And the, frankly, the, just the sheer creativity with which people were using this money to do wonderful things. So we've not, we've not written a report on the regional distribution of funding. I think somebody else will have to write that report. Uh, and so we've not gone into every one of the areas that you've just asked about, uh, Gavin. But what I would say is that I feel concerned that too often people try to apply a homogenous national policy to a place agenda that by its very nature is all about the distinctive characteristics and distinctive strengths of different bits of the UK. Yeah. And they then get frustrated when that homogenous approach doesn't work. So I'm much more drawn to something that, uh, first of all, uh, separates out the building of capacity from the reward of excellence. Okay. And they are sometimes confused. But secondly, is... Uh, 
tries to recognise and, and reward the distinctive strengths of different places rather than, than, than assume a homogenous model. No, I think that's fair enough. And it's certainly outside the scope of this report, as you say, exactly how regional development funds are used. But it, it's, uh, it, they are used differently in different parts of the UK, and different parts of the UK have greater or lesser reliance on, on some of those funds to invest in science. Yeah. I, I think, yes, and I think one of the questions that might be worth exploring you know, by somebody else another time is what good leadership looks like yeah. at a regional and local level. And I'm thinking of leadership by uh, local and city government as well as leadership from within the business or academic communities. Yes. There would appear to be some places that have done better than others at growing the, the, the volume of very high quality research. What is it that has allowed that growth to happen? Uh, how much of that can be mimicked by other regions and how much of it is absolutely distinct to the place in which it happened and can't be used as a cannot be used as a model for anybody else. Uh, I'm not sure that we've explored that as much as we, as we could. No, I, I think that's right. Certainly across England, the local enterprise partnership model was one that was trying to bring industry, higher education institutions and local government together. And you could say in some areas it's been a fantastic success and in some areas it hasn't. And that again is is an interesting question about why that model has worked some places and not others. In the report, you talk about the need for funding streams, and in particular, you identify two funding streams that uh, are additional. One of them is uh, additional QR quality-related funding, uh, and the other one is for a new agility fund. Uh, could you talk us through a little bit the thinking behind those two? Yes, indeed. Uh, they're, they're very much anchored in this question of agility. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that struck us quite forcefully during the, 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 the review was the amount of international collaboration that happens not inside some formal funding stream for international collaboration, but it happens spontaneously and organically. It's just, it's just researchers doing research in the way that research works. Yeah. And we felt that that was almost a, it, it was like a, a hidden layer of the research system. It was going on at considerable scale, but where was it being nurtured and recognised and rewarded in the funding system? We couldn't find the, the, the bit of the funding system that was supporting this really quite sizable layer of the research and innovation system. And the next thing we thought about and, and, and heard a lot about was that in the UK we have a, quite a high dependence on, on grant funding. We use grants as a very, as a quite dominant funding mechanism for research. And, they, and grants work very well indeed in lots and lots of ways. But one thing they don't do well is to support people who are trying to respond to fast-moving opportunities 
Yeah, because of the time delay. Because of the time. If, if you've got a fast-moving opportunity on the global landscape, then if you've got to go back and spend six or nine months applying for a grant, which may or may not arrive, then you know the world will long since have moved on. Yeah. Uh, and we just thought that not as an alternative to grants, but as a complement, as an addition to grants, it would be good to have some money that was there proudly to provide a more agile and a less structured research system, allocating that in response to past performance, perhaps, rather than future promise. Certainly within the UK funding system as a whole, it's been harder and harder to find funds that aren't tied down to specific allocations. And this is been, I guess, because the government's view is, is it wanted to demonstrate impact and value for money. And the more flexible you have a grant funding, the harder it is to really tie down exactly how the money's been used. So, it's, so I, I agree entirely with that. And I think that it, it might be that the pendulum has swung a little bit too far yeah. towards assessing one type of impact. And I, I think what I would... Uh, what I would um, suggest is that you can still assess impact. In fact, arguably, you can assess it even better if you and then offer them money on the, uh, as, a, as a reaction to that demonstrated and evidenced performance rather than that the report looks at is the issue of governance and administration um, and clearly with a potentially significant amount of additional funding that would require some, uh, some, ch some changes. What are the main issues here? What are the options that you were considering? So the first option we considered was whether or it was just how tightly we should specify this solution. <laughs> <laughs> and we concluded that we should, um, we, we should sit on the fence but sit on the fence, if you like, proudly and explicitly, and we should then go into some detail about what the fence looked like. Um, <laughs> and so we, that was the approach we took. So we set out a number of principles that might guide the design of the, the public administration. Mm -hmm. And then we derived a number of options from those principles. So we've set out four different alternatives for the design of, of the public administration. What we've not done is actually to go on and say, okay, this is our favorite. Uh, that said, some readers might be able to deduce, you know, or some, some readers may be drawn to some options more than others. Let me put it that way. That's absolutely beautifully <laughs> phrased. Um, <laughs> Clearly we have to wait for uh, a new election, a new government, to see how they're going to take forward uh, the recommendations you've put in your report. Uh, but certainly this gives them a lot to think about and it's a great starting point as they make some of those difficult decisions. Graeme, thank you very much. Thank you, Gavin. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio or wherever you found this podcast. 
or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.